everybody, and welcome to another episode of Who Knew, a history podcast. I am Mr. Rickson, and with me, as always, is Mrs. Allgood. Hello! So just a couple of housekeeping notes before we get started on today's episode. So we mentioned this in some of our previous episodes, but we are really excited to highlight something new that we've done for our Who Knew listeners, and that is create an Instagram page. Um, I know that a number of our listeners have asked us for some more content and specifically things like, where did you get your sources? And I'd love to you know, see a picture of this person or a video of this person. And so I have to shout out you, Mrs. Allgood, for setting, for setting it up, for starting to post some pictures to it. Um, could you tell the listeners a little bit more about uh, our Instagram account and where they can find some of this, the, these uh, cool features? You're absolutely welcome. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm pretty hip with the kids. Oh, wait, you didn't <laughs> mention that? I just made that up? Whatever. Um, yes. Um, but yeah, it's just a cool place where we post fun pictures and relevant history memes. You can find us at, at Who Knew History on Instagram. So go follow us. Uh, you are also welcome to send us direct messages if you have ideas for topics or things that you would like more of or less of. We will read all of them. And by we, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, so exciting. Okay. Uh, anyway, Mr. Rickson, how are you doing today? We're recording this episode in late July. So I know things are uh, pretty exciting at your house. They are exciting for sure. So for many of the listeners, you probably know, I'm sure we've talked about this in prior episodes, but my wife and I are expecting our first child. Literally, any minute now. So <laughs> it's entirely possible that in the middle of this episode, I may have to leave. Uh, so we're, you know, so depending on when you get these episodes, um, you know, we've been trying to get a couple of episodes in the can, so to speak. So uh, because we know that in the next couple of weeks, I will uh, be a little bit busier in a different capacity. <laughs> but, uh, but no, we're, we're obviously we're very excited. And we're very anxious. And we're now literally just kind of it truly is the waiting game. We're just kind of waiting, waiting to see when, uh, when this, when this new addition to the family comes into our lives. Well, gosh, I mean, things are almost as cool and happening over here as it is as your house. Um, as I've mentioned in our last few episodes, I've been waiting desperately for the swimming pool to open at my apartment complex, and it finally has. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine a greater joy to come upon your life than an open swimming pool in the middle of July? Um, but that also brings us to today's episode. Uh, some of you guys have been requesting more sports ball themed topics and for Forgive me, I'm not much of a sportsy kind of gal, but I was able to find something that I was really interested in, and I think some of you guys will be interested in as well today. I'm excited about this episode as well, and, and to your point, I think that you know we we did our episode on Arthur Ashe, and obviously we we focused a little bit on Ashe's tennis career, but we obviously focused, I think, way more on his civil rights and activism uh, part of his life and his career. So uh, I'm excited to do. A sports episode as well, but I'm also interested in the sort of the the different spin, if you will, that this episode is is going to have. So, as we always do, Mrs. Allgood, can you drop us into history before we get started? Absolutely, we are diving in to the year 1921. Warren G. Harding is sworn in as the 29th president of the United States. The Ottawa Senators defeated the Vancouver Millionaires <laughs> to win their second straight Stanley Cup. The New York Yankees make their first World Series appearance and they lose to the New York Giants. The White Castle Hamburger Restaurant opens for the first time in Wichita, Kansas. And on August 8th, 1921, Esther Jane Williams is born in Inglewood, California. History would come to know her as the Bathing Beauty or the Million Dollar Mermaid. Her career would influence thousands of competitive female swimmers and revolutionize the cosmetics and swimwear industries. I'm really excited about today's episode for, for two reasons. One, it's an episode about sports, and I'm a huge sports fan. And particularly right now, as sports starts coming back, professional baseball has come back, Major League Baseball has just started, the NHL and the NBA are set to get started in a couple of weeks as well. 
I'm also really excited about this episode because it has a focus on Hollywood and the entertainment industry, which is something you and I both are really interested in. And and really, this is exciting because this is a figure who, for me personally, I knew nothing about. So it was really neat to go through the show notes a little bit and kind of learn a little bit about this particular person. And Hollywood is actually a good place to start with Esther Williams. So how does Hollywood play a role in Williams's early life? Yeah, so like so many others in the golden age of Hollywood, Esther's own story begins in Hollywood. Her parents were from Kansas, which um, has very little to do with her career in swimming, you know, as a landlocked state. But ultimately, before she's born, her parents eloped and set off for California in 1908 or so. But they actually ran out of money in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is kind of funny. And they just ended up settling there and they popped out a few kids. It was here that Esther's older brother, Stanton, was discovered by a really prominent silent film actress and the family decided to move everyone to be near the movie studios. And I I think this is kind of interesting because it's something that's still pretty common with child stars in Hollywood today and throughout history. I mean, everyone from Judy Garland to Miley Cyrus was moved to Hollywood by their parents to help them pursue their career. But the main difference between child star families then and now is the wealth of these two eras. I mean, today, you like you really have to know someone and have a lot of money and connections already to get into Hollywood for real. Um, And while that was true of the Williamses and uh, the silent film actress that they met, I mean, they were like broke poor. Esther's dad actually built the family's house, which only consisted of a living room and a bathroom, and everyone had to sleep in the living room. And Esther was actually born in that living room in 1921. And I mean, this kind of story just kind of blows my mind, as I say over and over, when we study these things on this podcast. But then again, I was never totally serious about any of my sports or hobbies. Like I can't imagine my parents ever moving for me to like pursue professional soccer or acting or whatever. Like I could barely drag myself to soccer practice at the YMCA when I was in middle school. So I think that's where me and Esther Williams definitely differ the most. (laughs) But before I get ahead of myself, Esther really never meant uh, to make it in Hollywood, which is kind of ironic because she becomes one of the most iconic film stars of the 1950s. But like that was never her goal. She was a swimmer and she was an incredibly successful competitive swimmer in the years leading up to that. So how did she get into swimming? Can you tell us a little bit more about the start and the success of her athletic career at this moment? Yeah, so ever since she was a kid, Esther was a really voracious and enthusiastic swimmer. Her older sister would take her to the nearby beach, Manhattan Beach, and to the local pool in Los Angeles to practice. And when she became old enough, Esther took a job at the pool counting uh, towels in order to make enough money to pay the five cent entry fee to this uh, public pool. But mind you, the family was already pretty poor, so she's really working hard here. And most of Esther's childhood and teen years were actually spent during the Great Depression. But it was here at the local pool in the 1920s and 30s that this rascally young Esther Williams got swim lessons from the male lifeguards. And from them, she learned the, quote, male-only swimming strokes, which was basically everything besides the freestyle stroke. So, I mean, she's learning the backstroke, the breaststroke, the butterfly, which would eventually become her bread and butter in swimming. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of cool. Now, I like to think of myself as a pretty knowledgeable sports fan and even with sort of the history of sports itself, but this is something that I didn't know. So in the 1920s and 30s, you you said that there were actually specific strokes for specific genders. I mean, that is that it first off, unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me because no. in this era and really up until really Title IX in the 1970s, sports was a very gendered and and really, to use the term, a very segregated experience, right? The experiences of male athletes were vastly different than the experiences for for female athletes. Can you can you talk about this within the context of swimming itself? Yeah, I think the term segregated would be a pretty 
good term to use here because swimming for men and swimming for women during this period, the 20s and 30s, is kind of like this embryonic stage of competitive swimming, and it is going to be very uh, gender biased. So during the developmental years of Esther's swim career, there's a really pretty major battle going on for women to secure equal rights in most physical activities like swimming. Um, competitive female swimmers were relegated only to like rescue swimming in open water. So like going and saving dummies and practicing like survival skills um, or more like delicate strokes that were more suited to women's swimwear at the time, which was the freestyle or synchronized swimming and swim dancing, which was kind of becoming a thing on its own. But one of the biggest challenges to securing this athletic equality was appropriate swimwear for women at the time. Through the 1920s, women were required to be covered from head to toe while in the water. That would include wearing stockings. You can't show your ankles or your legs, a skirt to preserve modesty, like nothing skin tight is going to be appropriate, and even shoes while in the water while you are swimming. So if you think that's already enough drag in the water, these clothes were oftentimes made of wool, which was the most water-resistant fabric at the time. So as if it's not already hard enough for female swimmers, they also have to maintain consistent training um, in order to stay competitive. And as a woman at this time, it's actually going to be kind of difficult. Um, women would have to take a week off every month to take care of monthly lady things. And the technology to swim during that week of the month didn't exist yet. So women are at a, a natural disadvantage, at least to that point. And the American female swimmers weren't even eligible to compete in the Olympics until 1920, when rules in America were lifted, allowing women to wear one-piece swimsuits instead of the whole long skirt swim get up. And even by then, women were only allowed to compete in the 100 free, 300 free, and the 4 by 100 freestyle relay. But also, and you have to consider as well, competitive swimming was still a relatively new concept in the 1920s. It wasn't until 1924 uh, that Olympic pools developed lane lines for the first time. So like, you know, those things that kind of float on top of the water to delineate where different swimmers swim um, and lines are painted on the bottom of pools to keep swimmers from bumping into each other. So that's a pretty new concept. But anyway, um, Esther's going to end up taking pretty quickly to swimming and she becomes a mainstay at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. In 1939, she was already setting records in the 300 relay, the 100 freestyle. And by age 16, she had already won three national championships in the breaststroke and the freestyle. She was the fastest female swimmer in the United States by the time she was 16. When she graduated high school in 1939, she planned to swim competitively at the University of Southern California and also compete in the 1940 Summer Olympics, but her plans don't really plan out. First of all, she got a D in algebra that year, her senior year, and she lost her scholarship. I feel you, Esther Williams. This is the only thing you and I have in common. Uh, also, if you've been paying attention to the chronology of this story, World War II broke out in Europe and in East Asia in 1939, which canceled the Olympics. I mean, first algebra, then Hitler. Can things get any worse for Esther Williams? <laughs> <laughs> so all, all kidding aside, because Hitler's always the worst, right? It's like Hitler has to come in and ruin everything, right? Especially Hitler. when it comes to World War II. But <laughs> as I was going over our show notes today, it's really interesting in that there are really several parallels between our modern experience with COVID-19 and the outbreak of World War II in that dozens of major athletic events and, and competitive events were canceled all over the world. I mean, in the case of the of the of World War II, there were multiple Olympics canceled. I think, you know, both the summer and winter games were canceled. The FIFA World Cup was canceled. And, and this is such a big deal, especially for Olympic athletes, because in many Olympic events, you have such a limited window as, as, a, as an athlete to compete, right? It's, it's not like you can be an Olympic swimmer until you're 40 or 45, right? It's such a small window. 
Um, so, I mean, I have to ask what, what happens to Williams after this setback? I mean, I, I can't imagine what it must've been like to think you're going to go to the Olympics and then all of a sudden you, it, it's gone, right? The dream is gone. First of all, I have to throw in a really cool fun fact that I found. Um, Mr. Rickson, you know where the 2020 Summer Olympics were supposed to be held this year? They were supposed to be in Tokyo. Yeah. Do you remember where the 1940 Summer Olympics were supposed to be? So it's funny you mentioned that, Mrs. Allgood. I did a little <laughs> bit of research on this before we got started. Um, the 1940 Summer Olympics were also supposed to be in Tokyo, Japan, but the IOC, but the IOC withdrew Tokyo's bid because the Japanese invaded China as part of World War II. Um, the games were eventually rescheduled for Helsinki, Finland, but eventually they were canceled entirely in 1940, and they were also canceled in 1944. So, um, yeah, this is it, it's and what's also weird to think too is that. The Japanese were slated to host the games in 1940 at sort of the peak of militaristic Japan. Do you know who hosted the games four years before the Imperial Japanese? Bum, 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 Berlin! Yep, the 1936 <laughs> Olympics were hosted by the Germans and Adolf Hitler presided over the opening ceremonies. I mean, it is just, it's a, it's a chilling, chilling reminder of just how you know, this weird combination of sports and politics in, in this moment and really all, all moments, I think, especially of the Olympic Olympic movement. But, um, but well, that was a little bit of a tangent. So let's, let's kind of go back to, to Esther Williams <laughs> yes. and sort of what, what happens to her um, in the After aftermath the of this Olympic challenge. Yeah. I mean, like you, like you say, this is going to be a pretty huge setback for her professionally because for this this level of professional athletes, there's a very small window in which you can actually competitively participate and do well in. So it was the summer after high school that Esther's path takes a pretty surprising turn. She's working at a department store in Los Angeles to pay for a summer school class to retake algebra. And during this time, she is discovered by a man named Billy Rose, who ran a really successful Aquacade show in New York City. And it's called Billy Rose's Aquacade, as you might imagine. Um, this is like such a weird thing that is so of the times that I really can't think of a modern equivalent of this. So I'm going to do my best to explain. And I'll post some photos to the Instagram so you can kind of see this later. But Billy Rose's Aquacade is being moved for the season to San Francisco. The year is 1940, and we're at the Golden Gate International Exposition, which is the World's Fair minus the Axis powers of 1940. It's always a World Fair in every one of my episodes. Okay, but anyway, at the Golden Gate Exposition, imagine an amphitheater of 11,000 seats surrounding a giant pool and a 50-foot-high curtain of lighted water. There are fountains. Uh, there are dancers, swimmers, actors, acrobats. This is like the pinnacle of synchronized swimming. And it's all played in front of like a live orchestra. It is like the most grand 1930s thing I can think of. It's so unique in its own thing. But anyway, um, Esther gets asked to take over the lead swimming role alongside Johnny Weissmuller, who's actually like incredibly famous at this time. He is an Olympic swimmer. He participated in 1936 in Berlin and two other Olympics prior to this, I believe. And he was also the original movie Tarzan in the 1930s. So like, Mr. Rickson, I'm going to try to put this in sports terms for you. Um, imagine tomorrow you get a call from the owner of the Washington Capitals, which is like your favorite sports ball team. And they tell you that Alex Ovechkin wants to pair with you on the ice, doing whatever it is that you do when you play hockey. But like multiply that feeling times 100. This is a big deal for a recent high school graduate. Like she's 16 at this time. That is insane. And I think it really speaks to her talent in the water. I think that if high school Mr. Rickson had been asked to do anything hockey related with Alex Ovechkin or really any of my, my hockey heroes growing up, I would have probably had a heart attack and died. I just, it's just like, I can't really, 
I can't really fathom no. it. I mean, even even as a grown a grown man, I do kind of like geek out and fanboy out when I see <laughs> really any any professional athlete or really any figure. I mean, especially here growing up in the DC metro area, you know, you frequently you know, you see political figures and being a history junkie, that was always a, a, a really fun and kind of different thing that you experience, I think, living in this community. Now, we started the episode by talking about Williams in the context of Hollywood and how she moved to Hollywood with her family um, in the early 20th century. I have to imagine that these performances in the Aquacade kind of get her back into the entertainment sphere. Am, am, am I kind of on the right track here? Kind of, but not really. Uh, remember, Esther was never really meant for the entertainment sphere. She was a competitive swimmer. And then she lost out on her drive to the Olympics and was kind of forced into this thing to make money and stay in shape. Entertainment was never her idea of where she wanted to go. Um, but the Aquacade does kind of put her on that track towards entertainment. And she goes kind of reluctantly. Um, there's a talent scout from one of the biggest studios in Hollywood at the time. Metro Goldwyn Mayer, MGM. Ever heard of it? Like, this is a huge, huge deal. Um, in the early 1940s, Athletic artistic movies, especially musicals, were becoming a lot more popular. And Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, wanted someone in his studio to compete with Fox Pictures' famous figure skater actress called Sonia Haney. I've never seen any of her movies. I literally never even heard of her. She's no Esther Williams. Um, so she, Mayer like, really jumps on Esther Williams, and she signs a contract with MGM in 1941. But it's here that I'd like to give a little bit of context on the studio system of the golden age of Hollywood. It's one of my favorite topics and we could do a whole season on it. There's so much just drama and excitement and it's so, such a weird piece of history. So actors that signed contracts during this age, the 1930s and 40s had very little say in their contracts kind of with the exception of pay, but even then, I mean, it's a pretty oppressive system. The studios wrote contracts that essentially controlled the lives of their talent. Movie magazines and tabloids were a big deal at this time. So actors had to maintain a certain persona while in public as to not interfere with the public's opinions of them on the screen. So uh, for any of you guys listening, if you've ever seen the 1950s musical uh, Singing in the Rain, it's a really good example of like how these like actors of the 1920s, Lena Lamont and Don Lockwood kind of show this like fake relationship that doesn't even exist because the studio wants them to. Um, but anyway, so studios could say in their legal contracts what women actresses could wear in public, who certain actors could hang out with off the screen. Um some even pretended marriages and they even made up feuds that were just maintained for publicity's sake to get people to keep buying these like movie magazines. And they were also never allowed to appear in a film created by a different studio. And they also weren't allowed to turn down roles that the studio had chosen for them, which they, they really have no control over their own career. So Esther was able to fit in two major clauses into her contract to kind of help her out. Um, one is that she was given a visitor's pass to the nearby Beverly Hills Hotel where she could swim every day to maintain her shape. Um, and she was also a bit of a show-off, so she would go there really to just kind of exhibit herself, which I'm like, okay, everybody's got a little vanity in them. Um, she also couldn't appear on camera for nine months. She wanted a full nine months to learn how to act. Because remember, she's a professional swimmer, not an actress. So she was able to negotiate MGM to pay for acting, singing, dancing, and diction lessons to help her speak and perform on stage. Um, also, in this time during World War II, she was asked to go on hospital tours to meet with stateside GIs. She was pretty popular with the young men at this time due to her status as a pinup girl mgm had also like published plenty of swimsuit photos to circulate with the armed forces during the war so she was already pretty famous among at least that young military crowd by this time 
I think you're you make the good point that, and you're absolutely right. I think that you and I, our interest in the history of Hollywood, could literally we could do like a whole spinoff series or a whole season of Who Knew about the sort of early, the early days of of Hollywood, and it it, it really is just, it, it's kind of amazing. I think of now how actors are so are the drivers of the studio system, right? I mean, the actors are really the ones who especially the stars of Hollywood really just determine what they're going to want to do all the time. Right. I mean, it's just, it's such a huge part of, um, of the industry today. And it's really interesting to look at the flip side of the thirties and forties where the talent had no rights, right. No freedoms, right. They were sort of locked into the system. So after Esther, you know, takes this nine months to basically like learn how to be an actress and a singer and a dancer, what does her her movie career look like on, at the outset? It's actually like not too uncommon by a lot of contracted, quote, starlets of the 1940s. Um, her career was somewhat successful. MGM put her in supporting roles, mostly in kind of lighthearted comedies throughout the 1940s um, with Red Skelton and Lucille Ball, who you might know from I Love Lucy. She did try her hand at some dramas, but the studio ultimately found her to be better suited to comedies and musicals. And as I go through later in this episode, I'll get to read some quotes from her and you can kind of tell by her personality. Like she's just a naturally just funny person. So that's going to work out pretty well for her. But ultimately, it's pretty like kind of low key through most of the 40s, except for 1944. So by this time, the studio kind of starts working with a new genre of movie called the Aqua Musical, which was basically molded around Esther Williams. Her smashing breakthrough was in the film called Bathing Beauty in 1944 with Red Skelton. And it's actually a comedy where Red Skelton, who was like one of the funniest comedians of the 1950s, um, tries to like recapture his like wife who's left him and then Esther Williams like falls in love with him and blah 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 and then they swim in a pool and they're synchronized dancing it makes literally no sense it's a very 1940s just fluffy film um I'll put some pictures on the Instagram later to show you some of the the aqua like stuff going on but there are some pretty cool clips on YouTube as well if you have time to see just how bonkers cool the swimming in this film is and this film was kind of a combination of acrobats and pools and swimmers and singers and everything. And it would become the standard for how aqua musicals were shown on screen. This is like the foundation for that genre. Swimmers would perform in these enormous pools with hydraulic lifts that would shoot divers into the air, allowing them to flip in the air while fountains would shoot geysers of color and fireworks would go off in the background like it's totally mesmerizing but aqua musicals were also pretty new territory for mgm and they were often exceedingly dangerous and this is going to be a trend that kind of follows esther williams throughout the heyday of her career which is the bulk of the 1950s um No stunt doubles were ever used for Esther's crazy acrobatic stunts and diving and stuff because no one else was as talented as she was. Uh, And there were numerous near-death experiences throughout this time in her career. While filming the movie This Time for Keeps, MGM had Esther swimming in a plaid flannel swimsuit, uh, which actually zipped up the back, which was so heavy that it dragged her to the bottom of the pool, which was like... 20 feet deep and she had to unzip and undress to swim to safety to avoid drowning Uh, this was before latex swimwear was commonplace but and that's not even the worst of it um so mr rickson i put a link on our show notes that you and i are reading from for million dollar mermaid and i'd like for you to check that out later because it's pretty cool but one of her breakthrough films, arguably her most famous, was called Million Dollar Mermaid, and it was produced in 1952. And at like the, kind of the climax of this movie, she had to perform a 115-foot dive off of a tower during like this finale, right? So if you can imagine it, there's like a hundred or so synchronized swimmers going on at the bottom of this pool and they've kind of created this like big circle that she's supposed to dive into from this six-story tower um which was like 
made accurately. There are no like visual tricks here. So she's wearing a sequin like fishnet bathing suit. It's like a gold lame color and she has this gold crown atop her head. Um, so when she reached the six story high diving board, she like kind of gulped and she was like, this is, does not seem safe. But the director yelled for her to jump and without thinking, she hopped into a swan dive and about halfway down, she thought, oh, holy shit. The crown on her head wouldn't let her dive at a safe angle, and she didn't really notice that. No one had thought of it until she hit the pool. When she hit the water, the crown on her head snapped her head back, broke her neck, and left her arms paralyzed. And then everyone just left. Uh, They thought they had got the shot. They left for lunch. They're like, okay, cool. We're done. Um, Until someone kind of saw her flailing around and was like, oh my God, I think we just killed Esther Williams. She almost snapped her entire spinal cord and her body was in a full body cast for six months. That's just when, when you were putting together our show notes for today, I was sort of following along as we were both sort of collectively editing and, and I saw you add some of this information and I just thought to myself, that is, that is just, it's, it's crazy. It's just so, I think. How is it legal? I mean, and I think of, and again, like we were talking about before, I think of how valuable the, the talent is in the movie industry today. And I think of all of the stunt doubles and all of the choreography and, and there's a, there is a great deal of safety that I think film that studios and production companies put into, into all of this. And it's, it's painfully obvious that, that was not a focus of, of the 1940s and 50s in the in the film and television industry. Yeah, for sure. And this particular shot that I mentioned with Million Dollar Mermaid, the part where she jumps into the pool and breaks her net, that's in the finished version of the film. So when you go on YouTube and you search Million Dollar Mermaid Swan Dive, you literally see her jumping into the pool. But I mean, she was underwater when her head snapped. Um, but it was released, which is yeah. pretty, pretty crazy. That's just crazy. It's really crazy to think that, you know, that, 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 that cut or that, that shot actually remained in the finished version of the film. That, that's well, I mean, really, she's not going to really, go do that again with a broken spinal cord. <laughs> yeah. So, so no take two for that one, I guess. No, no, no okay. God, no. <laughs> now, I mean, all kidding aside, I mean, this is, this is something that both, both male and female actors and actresses had to deal with in this era of Hollywood, right? The sort of disregard for personal safety. Um, One of the things, of course, you also noted in your research is the double standard that female performers like Williams had to deal with on top of the studios not really concerned about their health and well-being. Can can you talk a little bit about what that double standard looked like for, for actresses like Williams in this period? Yeah, so as a woman researching this, and like considering just the physical trauma that was going on with her actual work to put kind of this beauty standard on top of it just feels like just rubbing salt in what is already so painful and difficult to do. So while Esker was literally risking her life to perform these incredible water scenes, she had to deal with the beauty double standard. Like When you go back and watch these films, you notice that all of the women are swimming and diving and they look just super pretty and buxom like that typical 1950s movies look. But then like, think about it. How do they keep their hair perfectly coiffed and their makeup? And I'm talking full face, heavy mascara, red lipstick, the whole thing. How do they keep all that in place? And it sounds really challenging. As an athlete and an actress, Esther had to maintain her strong physical physique of like an Olympic swimmer while also conforming to this kind of buxom, curvy Hollywood actress look at the time. Those things are usually mutually exclusive, but she was kind of a rare intersect of the two. And she kind of already had this trim hourglass figure, but she would have to maintain her body for 50 years as the standard bearer for the quote beach body during the 1950s and 
I was reading on her diet, she wrote that she just ate steamed chicken, steamed green beans and carrots for every single meal. I'm like, oh my gosh, that must be terrible. Um, but then there's also so much that goes into the cosmetic side of this, of maintaining this facade of a mermaid, dipping into water, performing literally underwater sequences with perfect makeup. And this is before the invention of waterproof makeup. So the key for Esther's makeup people was to create this like sticky, slimy film between her skin and the water, kind of like how a duck's feathers are coated in natural oil. So like the water just kind of runs off their skin, if you can imagine. So what they would do is they would warm this big bowl of baby oil and Vaseline and then smack the hot Vaseline all over her body. Like it would literally burn her and it was also spread on her scalp where her hairdressers would make a bunch of tiny little braids and then pin a wig of braids on top of her natural hair and they would pin it down so hard that it would regularly leave welts on her scalp but like it had to stay put when she jumped off a high dive and the face makeup is a totally like different story but just as icky for her foundation her makeup artist found a paste that was basically like the consistency of cold butter like if you can imagine kind of that thick sticky oiliness and cake it onto her face and then powder it down and then rush her into the shower room for it to like kind of melt and set permanently and for her eyes waterproof mascara was technically invented in 1938 before this period but it burned women's eyes because the main ingredient was turpentine which is not something you want in your eyes or face. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's so gross. So literally, like companies all over the world were working to capitalize on Esther's fame by creating something better. And waterproof mascara, the kind that like ladies were wearing today, uh, it was literally invented for her by a German chemical company in the late 1940s. But unfortunately, even though her name was on the label, she never profited from it. It's just, you know, you and I could do a whole episode, really a whole series of episodes about the the beauty standard and the double standard that, oh, that, women, that women in really all fields have had to confront. I mean, we talked about it a great deal, I think, with the Geraldine Ferraro episode, the, the double standard of American politics. And I think, again, this is a good example of the double standard that female athletes and female performers have faced over over the years. I so I would imagine that this, all of the work and all of the effort and really all of the incredible strain that she has to go through to be a performer, um, I can't imagine it doesn't help her personal life and her relationships away from the studio. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about what, what's kind of going on like when she's off the clock uh, in, in the studio system? Yeah, so I mean, in all, the 1950s were professionally her most successful years. Like, if you were to go look up Esther Williams movies, I mean, the ones that are kind of come up first are the ones from this decade, but her personal life was really just a total struggle fest at this time. So, I mean, imagine, along with the growing physical stress of her job, she'd had three kids during the same time period in the early 1950s. Uh, the last one after she had broke her neck and spine and stuff. Oh my gosh. And she was also in a really unhappy marriage. Her husband at the time was a pretty serious alcoholic and spent upwards of $10 million of her earnings, just totally squandered it. Um, they ultimately divorced by the end of the decade and she would go on to be married two more time. So she's just really not having a lot of luck personally. And by 1956, Esther was growing physically and mentally exhausted of appearing in these really intense aqua musical films. She actually turned down two lead roles, which if you remember, is not allowed in her contract. Like that is a fireable offense to turn down a role. If the studio wants you to do it, you do it. Um, and MGM ultimately released her from her contract and just financially just messed her up. As a result of leaving her contract, which MGM forced her to do, she lost almost $3 million in deferred contract payments. And she was only able to keep her $50,000 signing bonus from when she first signed her contract 15 years prior in 1941. After MGM, she 
appeared in a few unsuccessful dramas for Universal Pictures, and she did some guest appearances on popular TV shows like What's My Line and The Ed Sullivan Show, which was like the foundational show for Elvis Presley. It was really big in the 1950s. But by the mid-60s, she retired from acting and turned her attention elsewhere. So Esther Williams kind of has this very specific window of of fame and success right you you kind of mentioned it's primarily kind of concentrated on the 1940s and the 1950s with these aqua musicals um so what does her post acting career look like i mean she obviously doesn't have this sort of like lengthy storied hollywood career so what i mean what does she do once mgm and sort of and all of the the contract challenges that she faces in the in the in the in the 50s so this is actually one of my favorite things about her. She's pretty active in her post-acting career until her death in 2013. So she she keeps on going for about 50 years after she retires. One of the coolest legacies of Esther Williams was her commitment to supporting female swimmers and competitive swimmers, especially in the area of swimwear. Having lived from the years of woolen swim dresses to the string bikinis of the 1960s to this point, uh, she had some pretty hard and good opinions on what swimwear should be. And I found this quote that's like just it's really accurate about the nature of female swimwear. And it's also just kind of speaks to her humor. So she's quoted saying, women worldwide are fighting a thing called gravity. I say to women when I talk to them, you girls of 18, you know who I'm talking about, you have until about 25 or 30 at the most, and then you'll have to report to me. My swimsuits are quality fabric. I put a suit on you that contains you, and you will swim in it. I don't want you to be in two Dixie cups and a fish line. <laughs> <laughs> So like the more I, more reading I did on Esther Williams, the more I came to see her personality as this truly just honest, hilarious and irreverent person. She's just she's too cool. She's for someone who spent so much time in Hollywood, she doesn't kind of have that Hollywood feel to her. And what's also really neat is the swimsuit line that she created in the 1960s is still around today. I actually got one for the summer and she's right. It's quality stuff. It holds you in. And it's also really retro and cute. It's modeled on her, uh, her bathing beauty years. It's adorable. Uh, but anyway, through her later years, she continued her involvement with swim-related business ventures and found some financial success and a way to continue her support of competitive swimming for women. Uh, her role as a female swimmer has also helped to inspire professional competitive swimmers for decades. I mean, when you think of women like Katie Ledecky on the U.S. women's swimming team, I, these people just would not be where they are today without the pioneering spirit of someone like Esther Williams. Um, her movie career played a major role in the promotion of swimming. It wasn't something that everyone really thought to do. It made it attractive and interesting to the public, and it contributed to the growth of the sport as public recreation for health, exercise, and water safety, and just plain fun. I just am so grateful for her contributions, both to competitive swimming, which I know very little of, but also really attractive, comfortable swimwear, which I know a lot about. So as I go on enjoying the summer as much as I can before the start of school. I just want to give a shout out to Esther Williams for being a cool, awesome role model. I think that this is such a, it's a, it's a really neat story. And I think that again, as I said at the outset, this is, this is a figure that I knew nothing about. I didn't know anything about this person. And it's, it's kind of weird because it's this perfect intersection of things I'm really interested in again, like I'm really interested in the history of sports and I'm interested in the history of Hollywood and, and Esther Williams is kind of this really great sort of, again, this sort of crossroads or intersection of, of both of these things. So, so Mrs. Allgood, thank you for, for picking Esther Williams and for us uh, getting to dig a little bit deeper into her, into her life and career. It's been really good. Heck yeah. I'm glad you are still listening and talking to me 44 minutes into this episode. <laughs> All right. Well, we've come to the end of our episode, which means it's time for the fact off. So most of my facts are sports related. Big surprise. But uh, so 
we mentioned about the Tokyo Olympics, how in 1940, which Esther had hoped to compete in, the Tokyo Olympics were canceled. They had were taken from the Japanese. They were given to the Finns. And then, of course, the whole 1940 Olympics were canceled because of World War II. So Tokyo did eventually host the Summer Olympics. They hosted the Summer Olympics in 1964. Um, so this year is actually going to be the second time, or this year would have been the second time that the Japanese had hosted the Summer Olympics. But I wanted to focus on those 1964 games because of a really important person who competed in them. So in those Olympics, the U.S. men's basketball team won the gold medal. It was their sixth straight gold medal in men's basketball. And one of the stars of that men's team was a player named Bill Bradley. Bill Bradley had one of the coolest careers in really American sports and politics, I think, of anyone that I've ever learned about. So Bill Bradley was a star college basketball player at Princeton University, after he graduated from Princeton, he earned a Rhodes Scholarship and studied abroad in England. He returned to the United States and he played in the NBA for 10 years with the New York Knicks, winning two championships in the 1970s. And then he served in the U.S. Senate. He represented the state of New Jersey for almost 20 years. And he actually has a little bit of a tie-in to a previous episode. He was probably the biggest challenger to Al Gore in the 2000 Democratic primary. Um, wasn't very successful, but was very, very popular and just has this incredibly eclectic athletic and political career. And, and really, is he's, he's one of my dad's heroes. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to highlight him in today's episode. That is so interesting. Like I knew, I knew the name Bill Bradley from studying U.S. politics, but I would have never guessed that he was a sports ball guy. He was very, very big. Yeah, very. And like literally like successful at every level was a very That's successful college bananas. player. Won an Olympic gold medal and then won two NBA championships. That's so crazy. Pretty, pretty solid resume for Bill Bradley. Wow. All right. So <laughs> uh, this year, 2020, as we've mentioned earlier, would have marked the 100 year anniversary of women in America swimming in the Olympics. But alas, COVID. Uh, anyway, the 2021 Tokyo Olympics will also mark total equality in competitive swimming events between men and women in the Olympics. This coming Olympics will be the first time that female Olympians can swim the 1500 meter freestyle. It's never been available to them in the Olympics before. So lady swimmers, next time your coach makes you swim in tennis shoes or t-shirts, take a moment to reflect on those awesome women who broke into competitive swimming over a hundred years ago in their wool dresses. <laughs> it's such a weird sports parallel just a, a quick sort of aside fact here um you mentioned the wool dresses it was actually pretty common for baseball players in the early days of professional baseball to wear wool uniforms on a baseball diamond yeah um, and you can imagine i mean you think of some of the places where we had the early days of professional baseball so like st louis missouri and New York and Philadelphia and uh, Chicago, you know, these are not in the summer. These aren't cool climates. So I, I just can't even imagine wearing a wool anything in an athletic competition, let alone in a swimming pool. But uh, you're about to unleash Colonial Williamsburg, Mrs. Allgood, and I can explain this to you. <laughs> <laughs> It's a natural fabric, it's breathable, it's water resistant, i.e. sweat resistant, and you can make light grade versions of wool, which they would have worn in the pool on the baseball diamond and also on the battlefield in the Civil War because those uniforms were also made of wool. So I did, I did know that. I, I mean, that. if you're living a life without latex, wool is a pretty good way to go. <laughs> okay, okay. So earlier we mentioned Johnny Weissmuller who was a successful Olympic swimmer before he became a successful actor. He was also an MGM contract player. He was Tarzan in a series of Tarzan movies that MGM produced. Although successful Olympic swimmer probably doesn't do it justice. So I was doing my research on Weissmuller. So Weissmuller competed in the 1924 Paris Olympics and the 1928 Amsterdam Olympics. 
and he won a total of five swimming gold medals. He also won a bronze medal in water polo, just, you know, just because just he figured he would compete in water polo as well. And along with his Olympic medals, he won 52 U.S. National Swimming Championships, and he set 67 world records, including he was the first man to swim the 100-meter freestyle in under one minute and the 400-yard freestyle in under five minutes. So when we say successful Olympic swimmer, that's... That's 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 kind of a misnomer. Like he was a hyper successful Olympic swimmer. He's like the proto Michael Phelps. Like he was incredibly talented. That's yes, pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, he's sort of in the same lineage of uh, of Michael Phelps or Mark Spitz. Some of the listeners may know Mark Spitz from the Munich Olympics um, when he dominated um, those those Olympics. Um, I always like Mark Spitz is an interesting swimmer uh, fact. Um, didn't wear a swim cap and had like very wavy thick hair um, which I always thought was interesting about uh, about Mark Spitz when he competed uh, in the Munich Olympics well hey speaking of wavy um, while filming the film Skirts Ahoy 1952 can you think of a more misogynistic name to a movie (laughs) oh my gosh while filming Skirts Ahoy um Esther Williams discovered that members of the WAVES, which is Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service for the Navy, uh, she realized that people in the WAVES received thin, cotton, shapeless swimsuits as parts of their uniforms, and she was not about this. So this was kind of at like the pinnacle or the the start of her like women's swimwear campaign. So she modeled a coal swimsuit, which was the first mainstream swimsuit that was created with latex for the secretary of the Navy. Like she went to Washington, modeled a swimsuit for the secretary of the Navy and explained that these new swimsuits help support women's figures. The U.S. Navy then promptly ordered 50,000 of these swimsuits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think that Skirts Ahoy is, if you're looking for the most misogynistic name, I th- that one's that was pretty on the nose, I think. Uh, that was, uh, that, that's, that's pretty, pretty, pretty fair, fair criticism. Welcome to the 50s, but also gotta appreciate that gumption. I wish I had it in me to go model a swimsuit anywhere. So you go, Esther Williams. <laughs> for the Secretary of the Navy, no less. Oh my goodness gracious. Well, all right. Well, guys, if you are still listening at the end of this episode, thank you so much for joining in today i hope you'll learn something good absolutely so again we want to encourage all of our listeners to check out our new instagram feed um correct me if i'm wrong this is all good again you can find it at who knew history on instagram is that right that's correct awesome so we will continue to post pictures videos show notes uh again it's we hope it's a great way for you to dive a little bit deeper into our into our content Um, but we look forward to joining you guys next time for the latest installment of Who Knew? A History Podcast. Take care, everybody. Bye.